Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful mystery it is that your son came, took on flesh, lived, died, rose again in our place, the sinners. It is he who we look to exalt this morning. So use this time, use your words to build up your church in the way that we should follow and exhort us to do so in a way that glorifies you, we pray. In your son's precious name, amen. Well, good morning once again. And a wholehearted thank you, Kelly. That was so beautiful. I'm so glad I didn't have to speak right after that. I was, that was just wonderful. Uh, children, that was a highlight for me. I know they're not in the room, but perhaps like me, your heart was overwhelmed with thankfulness to see the little voices praising God. For those that are new to our church, well, welcome. If you're visiting, we are in the book of John, and at the pace I go, you haven't missed much. <laughs> so open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3, and we will be looking particularly at verses 14 through 21 this morning. But let me give you some context before we go there. As a brief reminder, for those that were here last week, there was a conversation happening at night. And this was by perhaps candlelight, as we'll celebrate tonight the arrival of Christ Jesus. And at this moment at night, Nicodemus is with Jesus Christ, and he has questions, lots of them, three of them. And Jesus gives three answers, two to questions that were asked and one to a question that was not asked. Nicodemus, if you look to verse 2, says, I know that you are a teacher from God because no one can do what you do unless God is with him. So here is a better teacher than he is. This is the teacher. Remember, this is the leader of the Sanhedrin. This is the teacher. This is a Pharisee. He should know better, but he is now here with somebody that's not like anybody that's ever come before. He is here with an elevated teacher, a better teacher. Jesus is, does not speak like anyone else. He does not act like anyone else, for he is a man who is both fully God and fully man. Jesus tells Nicodemus that to live eternally with God, one must be born again. Verse 3. And after Jesus explains the reason for the new birth spiritual, spiritually, Nicodemus, still not understanding, says to Jesus, how can these things be? There is a stark contrast presented by Jesus between being born in the flesh and that which is born of the spirit. Just like one does not contribute to their birth physically, one does not contribute to their birth spiritually. And that's where we enter the story this morning. So please look down to verse 12 as we'll pick up the interaction. Jesus turns to Nicodemus and he says, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, then how are you going to believe if I tell you heavenly things? For no one has ascended into heaven, verse 13, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Spiritual 
regeneration. Big term, theological term. What does it mean? To be born again spiritually is the prerequisite for truly understanding what Jesus means here. No contribution Nicodemus will make puts him or friends, you or I, into the kingdom of God. It initiates, it starts with God. And two questions came to me following last week's sermon. How can these things be? Don't we have a role in our salvation? But we do have a role. There's a tension that happens. Perhaps you can think of what it is. And the tension is this. We have a divine sovereign plan by God. And yet, we have a human responsibility. Look to your Bibles. Now, God so loved the world, verse 13, or 16, excuse me, that he gave his only begotten son. Now, this time of year, some of you might like to watch Hallmark Christmas movies. Anybody? Okay, there's a few of you that are brave enough to raise your hands. Now, let me just explain this. Hallmark Christmas movies are not true love stories. I hear a few groans and a few moans, and I see some heads nodding. A Hallmark Christmas movie goes like this. They meet. They don't like each other. Am I getting warm? Something happens. Maybe a business is failing. There's economic troubles. And then something happens, and somebody bends. And then, lo and behold, within one hour and maybe 45 minutes, they have moved from dislike to like to perhaps even love. Maybe there's a wedding. Perhaps there's a kiss. And then we read read the end. And guess what? Spoiler alert, they're all like that. (laughs) God's love is not like this. God's love is a true love story. But here's something I want you to understand. There's a new notes page, by the way, and I want you to write this down. God was not lacking. God was not lacking in his love. He does not need you or I to complete his perfect love. But out of his true love for the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, he decided to enter into time, space. He decided to create humanity but it was not because he was lonely. Rather, he gave us the opportunity to enter into the love story. And that's where we join the journey this morning. Perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible is John 3, 16. Here's the big idea. It's in your bulletins. It's in the notes pages. Every man, woman, child is a sinner in need of a savior and God so loved the world that he gave 
his only son as a means for salvation. A true love story, first point. God's love story is a true love story for it is founded on the perfect and unchanging love which the triune, big term, means God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, have for one another. Let me speak to parents in this room. Some of you have your children with you in the service. Some of you just saw your little children sing, would you die for your child? Of course. You love your children, don't you? This is the part where you're supposed to nod your head. We would, we would die for our children. We would die for our spouses or friends. But God so loved the world that he died for us. When we were still sinners, we were enemies. And that's when he sent his son into this world. God demonstrates his love for us, Romans 5, 8, toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love story, John three sixteen. In fact, if you took the entire Bible and said, give me a verse, one verse that summarizes the entire Bible into one verse, you could actually say the gospel, the good news, is summarized in John three sixteen. For it summarizes the entire Bible, presents the good news, and the gospel message. And the following verses summarize not only the breadth, but the depth of the love of God for us. That he would be willing to sacrifice his only son in our place, sinful humanity. Now, Fred, a number of months ago, said when you see the word therefore, you want to know it's there for a reason. Let me give you a little Bible lesson. Turn to verse 16. A lot of people start at verse 16 and say, for God so loved the world. And what the for is for is it is a technical term. It's a ground. It's a connecting word that says what is coming after is predicated on what came before. Does that make sense? So look to verse 14. This is what became before. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. True love has true sacrifice. In verse 16, it is the grounding, but there is a tension that's happening in verse 15. And what is this tension? Whoever believes, whoever is an inclusive term, it means if we believe, if you believe, you will be saved. So what is the tension? There's a divine sovereignty, God's choosing and human responsibility. Whoever believes will have eternal life. And although God controls by divine decree, the sovereign power, everything that goes on in this world according to his purposes, that does not remove one iota of culpability of each of our sins. You and I are responsible for our sins before a holy and just God. We choose to do evil. We choose to sin. And the tension is real. 
Evildoers do not do evil because they are forced to, but they're evil on their own intent. So God will judge them for both the act and the motive, as well as their failure to give him glory and to worship him. The tension is real. Two people asked me last week, how can it be that we choose God, but God chooses us? Have you ever thought of that question? God is not limited in his abilities. We are limited in our understanding. This tension that we feel is because of our limited capacities to understand God's perfect plan. To further illustrate, let me give you, for those that take notes, I believe they're in your bulletins, Proverbs 16. Do you see those verses? Proverbs 16 under point one. Somebody nod. There we go. Good. Isaiah 10, Luke 22. If you have a pen, underline these ones that I'm highlighting. Proverbs 16, Isaiah 10, Luke 22, Romans 9, Acts 4, and 1 Peter 2. Why do I get you to underline these? Go home and read these passages individually as a family, and you will see the tension that I'm describing. You will see passages that talk about God's sovereign election. You will see passages that talk about whomever chooses will have life. So these tensions do exist in our limited understanding. But let me give you one specific example. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 6. And let's scroll down in our, in our, with our fingers or on the iPads or whatever device you're using to verse 35. So John 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So if you're spiritually hungry and spiritual thirst, that can be remedied according to Christ. What does it mean? It means this, whoever, 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 believes in me, whoever believes in me will never thirst. I said to you, you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Look to verse 37. All that the father gives me will come to me. Next verse 40, look down. For this is the will of my father that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. It goes back and forth like this again and again. Regeneration is a work from God. The father chooses, the father draws, the father gives to the son and the son receives. The son keeps and loses none. Verse 57. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so he who eats with me, he will also live because of me. All you have to do is receive Christ. Take Christ in, and then you have eternal life. One more verse. Two more, actually. Down to verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and of life. Do you get what I'm saying? Who initiates the faith? God. Who is culpable, responsible for, for replying to this drawing? We are. We are 
There's a duality involved. It's the spirit who gives life, John 6, 64. There are some who did not believe, and because of that, in verse 66, many of his disciples withdrew. They weren't walking with any more. He said to the 12, and some of the most precious words the entire Bible come here. Ready? You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. God is sovereign in redemption. A fact that explains why we thank God for our salvation. We pray to, for him for our salvation. And we, or we pray for our lost friends and family, don't we? If the power, think through this question carefully. If the power to save lies in man's free will, if it truly lies in their unaided ability to save themselves, then why would we implore God to quicken, to save, to regenerate them? Salvation originates from God. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, to a living hope, to the resurrection. But we have a responsibility. And what is that responsibility? We have a responsibility to respond. We have a responsibility to share the good news. We have a responsibility to pray for the lost. Romans 10, 11 through 13, for the scripture said, whoever believes the same whoever, by the way, in the root, will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends, Christmas time brings in potentially people that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. God's word is so abundantly clear. If you call on the name of the Lord in faith, you will be saved. And therefore, I exhort you to do so. Period. This tension that we have here is our limited, our finite understanding. Let me wrap it up really simply. Essentially, we can say with the clarity the Bible teaches this. God calls, God initiates for every true believer. We are called to share the good news as we do not know. You know, the last few weeks we've been handing out these things that say come and worship with us tonight, right? Hopefully you've done so. Yesterday, we went around our neighborhood and knocked on doors and gave Olivia's beautiful baked treats. And let me tell you, that's the way to do it. (laughs) Bring a young one, a cute young one, and bring baked goods, and they are willing to open the door and talk. But how pointless is it if all we do is build relationships and don't point them to the fact that they're lost and dying? Take comfort, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are called to share this good news, and every true believer will respond. Makes it clear. But we need to repent of our sins and believe by faith. It is a love story which starts with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally existing. Then it extends out to humanity because of his love for us. Ultimately, we are a wedding gift for his son. Have you ever thought of that?
Turn back to John 3.16. For God so loved what? The world. Do you know what the world means? That means people. The world is not the physical world, not the earth, not the magma, the molten, not the dust. It's what the dust was turned into, which is humanity. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you. John 14, 7, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. The same word, the world, in those two passages. Earth does not hate people. Earth does not receive people. People hate people. People receive people. The world is talking about people. True love requires not just words, but action. We just celebrated our 31st anniversary. January, uh, December, I should know our date. December 16th. Now imagine if I came home to Dawn and I had these beautiful box of chocolates. Well, she doesn't love chocolate, so let's use a different analogy. Some lovely flowers. Tulips are her favorite. And I come home and I've got these lovely tulips, her favorite color and a beautiful card. And I've written in the card and they're just beautiful sentiments talking about how lovely she is and how much I love her and how thankful to God I am for her and how wonderful she is as a mother of our children, etc., etc. Take her out to her favorite restaurant, perhaps, maybe bring it in. And then at the end of it, she says, well, that's so beautiful, thank you. And I respond, well, I had to. It's our anniversary. How well is that going to go? See, words matter. Actions matter. True love requires a consistency between our words and our actions. See, I wouldn't even have to tell her at the end of that that I love her because she would have seen it. But God not only acts, he tells us of his acts, which are summarized in John 3, 16. God is not like us. He's so intense for his love for creations that he provides the ultimate sacrifice, his one and his only son. We're not like him. We don't love like him. Others live for themselves, selfish, self-centered sinners, wretched, rebellious sinners like you and me. But God, this act of love was so giving, so sacrificial that he gave not just a son, his son. Love is the reason that this sacrifice ultimately Jesus will make on the cross. Jesus didn't come to be born. Jesus came to be born and die. Now, friends, what's missing on the cross behind me? Christ. See, he didn't stay dead. He rose again. And that's the hope that we have. For not only did he rise, but he will come again. God the Father, through his perfect plan, makes the most heartbreaking, sacrificial sacrifice possible. A plan involves God's son taking on flesh, John 1.14, and making the ultimate sacrifice, a plan involving God the Holy Spirit that would be involved in the resurrection and ultimately indwell every believer. D.A. Carson adds this. And for those new, don't worry, points two and three are shorter. Okay? 
As the new birth, the acquisition of eternal has been grounded in the lifting up of the sun, verses 14 to 15. So also the lifting up of the climax of the sun's mission is itself grounded in the love of God. The sun's mission is the consequence of God's love for us. Let me read the last part of that sentence again. If you really want to meditate on something as you go home today and tomorrow as you get ready to celebrate Christmas, the son's mission is the consequence of God's love for us. Love of God for his creation is not little passing interest. It's so intense, so abiding that it adds the word so. For God so loved the world that he gave. Such love acts is such a personal love, isn't it? The purpose that the son would perish is so that believers in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. The Bible is the most beautiful and the most intense and the most appropriate love story ever told. From cover to cover, Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation, it's a love story undying by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we are the stage in which the love story is displayed. The Bible shows a constant pursuit of, by God. Think of the Old Testament. Time and time again, man sins. And what does God do? He patiently provides more time, more time, and more time relenting, and eventually he sends his own son in. See, this love story is so intense that not only does he provide the, the path for reconciliation, he provides the very means for reconciliation through his own son. That's a love story. There's no greater act of mercy than initiated by the father's plan followed by the son so that whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life, point two, belief and condemnation. For God did not send, verse 17, his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And he who believes in him is not judged, and he who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the begotten son of God. The result of belief, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. No longer does John speak of the world holistically. Notice this. Now he turns it and he distinguishes between the one who believes and the one who does not believe. Before it was a, it was a corporate world, but now we have whoever, it's an individualistic. To condemn means to judge a person guilty, to be liable to punishment. The believer is no longer guilty the sin has been removed and Jesus did what we could not do for ourselves. If you stood before God this morning and tried to explain why you sinned, what would the response be? Guilty. There is no justification for sin before a holy and just God. But God, rich in his mercy, provides the very means. Some of you know Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, lived a long time ago now, 
He had a way with words. Listen to his words. Is it not foolish to be living in this world without a thought of what you will do at last when you die? One day a man went into an inn and as soon as he sits down, he begins to order some wine and his dinner and his bed and there's no delicacy which he forgets to order. He stops at the inn for some time and eventually the traveler is presented with a bill and it takes him by his surprise. He replies, I never thought of that. Why? Says the landlord. This man is either born a fool or he's a dishonest man. He never thought that there was a day of reckoning that he would need to settle with me. Too many live like this man. They eat, they drink, they sin, they forget that there is inevitably life after this life. And when all their deeds are done in this body, we will be brought into judgment by the Lord. Friends, we are just like this foolish and deceitful man, are we not? Each one of us stands before God one day marked for death and we are all declared guilty in our own devices. But the Bible states it's not just some of us that are guilty, does it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 But God provides a way to settle our account. The landlord, the innkeeper, God not only provides the meal, the bread, the drink, but provides the means for reconciliation, which means repairing our broken relationship to God. Through belief, through faith in Christ, one's guilt is removed, washed away. And the image I want you to walk away with this morning is this. When God sees you, he sees Jesus. It's not even a shadow of your sin. It's not even a particular part of your past. Jesus is completely covering you and me. And so what God sees is Christ. And you are declared innocent by faith. What better Christmas gift could you ever hope for? You don't know how many Christmases you have left. But the opposite is also true. For those who disbelieve in the Father, the one and the only Son, we stand condemned if that is us. God's wrath remains on them, John 3.36, and therefore the only justification for mankind is found in one word and in one person, belief, Jesus There was a great light who comes into the world, broke through darkness, Jesus, the true light, which through the power of the Holy Spirit illuminates, darkens minds and softens, hardened hearts. The light, which although had come, was not understood or believed by most of mankind, loved the darkness and they walked in darkness. The last point is light exposure. Isaiah prophesied, that the people who walk in darkness, Isaiah 9, 2, 3, will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land will see the light shine on them. The New Testament opens with the book of Matthew. And in Matthew four sixteen, it says this. The people who were sitting in darkness, what? Saw a great light. They will see, they did see. 
And those who were sitting in the land of the shadows of death, upon them a light dawned. John 1, 1 through 5. Do you remember how we started some time ago in this book? What does it say? Go back to John 1 and look carefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God eternally. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is described, which we will celebrate here tonight, both audibly and visually, as the light of the world. John 8, 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them and said, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is the judgment. Look to verse 19 to 21 of John 3 as we conclude. John 3, 19 to 21. God's word says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and the men, what? Loved their darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. You know what a dust bunny is? Okay, I see some of the guys going, what? Okay, so, all right, so a dust bunny is this. The places in your home that you don't clean as often, when the light comes in, what do you notice? Oh, hey, it looks a little dusty and dirty there. Perhaps it's under the bed, perhaps it's up high, perhaps it's on top of the cupboards. When we moved into our house, one of my favorite moments was seeing some of the people in this church up in our cupboards, cleaning them. What a sacrificial group of people you are. Thank you. God's word isn't a little light. It is illumination. It takes everything that was hidden and is exposed. There's nothing you're going to hide from God. There's no ability that you have to come before God and try to deceive him. Christ is a spotlight into our lives. The light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than their light. Why? For their deeds were evil. For everyone, verse 20, who does evil hates the light. We've been there, Christians, have we not? When we preferred to walk in darkness We didn't want to talk about God. We didn't want to pray to God. We didn't want to hear about God. Perhaps some of you in this room feel exactly like that right now. But God, rich in his mercy, sent his son to die for you and me. The light shines in the world. Verse 21. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested, which is a big word that just says made known as having been wrought, originated in God. Let me speak to two different people as we conclude. If you are not believers in Christ, this might be the only moment I ever have to say what I'm going to say to you. So I'm going to pretend I'm speaking to everybody else, but I'm actually speaking directly to you now. This sermon was meant for you, whether you're younger, older, richer, poorer, boy, woman, girl, man. Salvation is a work from the Lord. He initiates your faith. I've been very clear. I pray to that end. People are like sheep because God acts. God chooses you 
and works in you and transforms your heart and inclines you to love what Jesus loves. God takes your heart of stone and puts a a soft heart of flesh, Ezekiel 11. He breaks your pride. He gives you a lowly, contrite openness to a God-exalting, human-abasing truth. It is no accident that you're here. It is no accident that you are called sheep, as am I. For we are not wise in and of ourselves. We all need a shepherd to save us and to guide us. And when that transformation happens, then you will believe. And Jesus will appear for what he really is, the most precious and the most all-sufficient hope. My prayer for you this Christmas is that you accept this gift. Your Christmas tree might be filled with presents that will be gone. But this is a gift that will remain. And guess what? You will remain, just not here. You will have eternal life, whether or not you believe it, whether or not you like it, you will live after you die. And so my gift, I pray for you, is God's word. I pray you hear it. I pray you receive it. And I pray you believe it. If you feel that he is doing this work, and then simply believe in the Lord. Acts 16, 31. Believe in the Lord by Jesus, Jesus by faith, and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. You know, you know you're a sinner. You know what I told you this morning is true. The Bible says in Mark 1 verse 5, repent of your sins and believe. Turn finally from dark, darkness to the light. Acts 26 verse 18. For the dominion of Satan of God, receive forgiveness of your sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in Jesus Christ. Now let me take the spotlight and turn it from those who do not believe to the rest of us that are believers. He who practices the truth comes to the light, verse 21, so that his disease, uh, sorry, deeds may be manifested, having been wrought in God. Believers, the spotlight is on our lives too. Perhaps we have some dust bunnies. Do you? Do we act like God? Do we speak like God? Do we love what God loves? I think in each of our own lives, this is a moment of self-reflection this Christmas season. See, here's my exhortation for you tomorrow, tonight. Some of you are going to go home. You're going to have family members. You're going to have people come into your home. Maybe you go into other people's homes. They are going to notice what you say, what you treasure, and what you do. See, what we treasure, our mouths speak of. Some of you might have grandchildren. We have some grandchildren coming to visit us. Can't wait in the new year. How easy is it for me to speak of our two grandchildren that are coming and we have a new grandchild on the way, different family. It's real easy to talk about them, to show pictures of them, to to praise them, to see them develop and, and just admire them. Do we talk like that and even more so about Christ? See, when you're around the dinner table 
my encouragement, my exhortation for you is three words. Intentionality is the pinning. Intentionality with three words. Your neighbors, your time, and your mouths. Your neighbors around you aren't here this morning. They need Christ. Let's go after this service and give them another flyer. Try to bring them in here for tonight. Tonight's going to be special. This is where they need to be, not just around dinner tables, filling their bellies, filling their cups, going to an innkeeper and not realizing there's a day of accounting coming soon. They need to be here and hear the good news of Christ, the light of the world. Be intentional with our time. A quick prayer for God and thankfulness for Jesus followed by a wrestling match for gifts under a tree. Short tempers due to the busyness of season is not reflective of our Savior. Let's dedicate time to honor God, to praise God. May that be what dominates our Christmas tables and our hearts. Be intentional with our mouths. Let's be purposeful in our praise for God, exalting God, centering our speech firstly and foremost on the real meaning, the real joy of Christmas, which is Jesus Christ. You will not only impact non-believers, trust me, you will, but you will be shaping something that I want you to remember for a long time. You're going to shape your children and your grandchildren. We have people potentially that might come into our house, maybe even family members that want no part of this. Guess what? It's your home. It's your home. If this is central to your life, make it central to your mouths, please, this Christmas season. Maybe their parents aren't believers, but you might impact your grandchildren. So do so with intentionality. Do so with purposefulness because we love Christ. And therefore, let that dominate our tables, our intentionality of our mouths. And may it be central in all we do this Christmas. Remember, we are to walk as children of light, pointing people to the light of the world who's come down and celebrated this Christmas. I pray you'll come back tonight. I pray you're going to see and hear a special night together, praising our Lord. It's chosen at 5 p.m. intentionally, for that is just after the sun sets. Why? Because what you're going to see, we pray, is this, that the light of the world broke through the darkness. And guess what? It's never going to be dark again. Old times, God spoke to us through the prophets. But Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, but God took on what? Flesh. And he spoke to us through his son. That's who we celebrate this Christmas. Thank you for many who have worked hard to make today and tonight so special in our church. My exhortation as we go to prayer is this. Bring a friend, bring a family member, bring a neighbor, and let us truly love others by being bold in our witness. Every woman, every man, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, but praise God, he so loved the world that he gave his only son as the mean for our salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm overwhelmed with thankfulness for what you've done in my place, in our place as 
sinners, that you not only created us, but you sent your son to come in the world so that we can be saved through him, through his life, through his death, and through his sending of the spirit in our lives to dwell in us as your believers. God, help us to be bold this Christmas, not offensive, but winsome in our words and and just overflowing with thankfulness for our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came to took on flesh, who lived.